Heavenly Father, it is an incredible, incredible gift and incredible privilege that you would speak to us. I thank you there's not a single person in this room that you're not going to, to, to speak with this morning, and I, I ask that by the work of the Spirit, you give us the, the grace to hear it, to receive it, um, to believe it, to respond to it. May we come to, to this book not like any other. May we come to these words not like any other words, but, but what they truly are, the living and active Word of God. As we gather, we, we have task lists that, that are that are clamoring for our attention. We have laundry to fold and we have Thanksgiving plans to, to, to act on and shopping to do. And we have inboxes full of emails that need to be answered, God. There, there's, there's games on. There's, there's just so many things that, that could, could distract us from hearing from you. And so I ask that you'd help us to, to remember that you are sovereign. This world holds together in you, not us. So we can take these next moments and and really be present before you. God, as we gather before your word, we, we, we want to be stirred and challenged and, 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 and we want to wrestle. God, this, this text that you're giving us today is an is a incredibly freeing text if we can hear it. But, but what we need more than anything else is to, to leave this time more impressed with Jesus. So would you make Jesus loud? Would you make him loud in this sermon? Would you make him loud in this text? Would you make him loud in our songs, in our conversations, our prayers? God, as we're sent out from this place, and would you make him loud in this coming week until we gather together again to retell of the great works of Jesus Christ? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was in college. It was my senior year. Um, it was a Western, and a... Uh, uh, Decided to make a burrito, so it was lunchtime, throw a burrito in the microwave, and then we had this little like broom closet off to the side of, of the, the kitchen that we'd flipped into a music room, and so I start the, the burrito, jump into the music room, close the door, start playing guitar, and I got distracted. So I just got, I got lost track of time, and I'm just playing, I'm playing, I'm playing, and then all of a sudden I just hear this massively loud smoke Alarm. And so I, I open up the door, I jump into the kitchen, and it is full of smoke. And so I did that. I, it kind of reminded me of like a, one of those cartoons where it's like you're freaked out, and so all you do is you just run in a giant circle. So this room is full of smoke, and I'm running, 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 running. And then my roommate Steve walks into the, the room. Eagle Scout Steve. Mountaineering Steve. He's 22. He was an assistant firefighter. Steve, he just walks in, swaggers, goes over to the microwave, grabs the fire extinguisher, puts out the fires, walks over, opens the window, then just turns around and walks out of the kitchen. (laughs) I've never been more grateful or emasculated in all my life. true story. And one of the things when I think back on that story is how is it that some people can be so calm in anxious situations? Like how is it that in in a moment where one person is literally freaking out, someone else is able to to not panic? Today we're going to look at this question really specifically. How how can you have a non-anxious presence in a very anxious world? 
Or how do you not freak out when the world's freaking out? In light of that, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you, would you stand with me? We'll start at verse 1 and read down to, to verse 28 of chapter 2. This is God's holy, helpful, um, really calming and freeing word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, they be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants a dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servant the dream, and we shall show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you were trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream, or if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and set up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you've made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, 
do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven. Feel free to grab a seat. I can relate to, to verse 1. The king is having bad dreams. Since I was about 9 or 10, um, I've really struggled with bad dreams. Every night until actually just a, just a couple of years ago would have bad dreams and nightmares and, and, and feel bad for my wife. With that, because one of the things that will happen when, when, when I'm having bad dreams, I'll often yell in the middle of the night. I'll just start yelling. And so sleep flees me, and then sleep flees my wife. And then I fall back asleep as she rubs my back. And so, so I can relate to this verse. The king is, is, is troubled by his, his dreams. And at this time, the background of this is that it's not just a nightmare, but oftentimes dreams like this were a window on the future. So that's why the king is calling all these, the, the, the wisest people of, 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 his, of his kingdom to come and to try to help him understand what's going on because what he sees matters both for him but also for this nation. The king is afraid. He's freaked out. If you're going to pick a word that's a really dominant word in this chapter, it would be something like fear. The king is afraid, but, but really now the wise men are afraid. The Chaldeans are afraid. The astrologers are afraid. Everyone is almost afraid. A lot of us can relate to that. When our sleep is disturbed, whether that's with bad dreams or, or whether you're disturbed when you're fully awake because we simply live in a wonderful but also broken world. Anxiety makes sense. In a world that's unpredictable. Fear makes sense in a world that kind of blindsides you with calamities. Although the way uh, David Pallison says, they modify this just a little bit, but this is what David Pallison says, is the first thing is to recognize that the experience of anxiety makes a lot of sense in a fallen world. The real miracle is that not everyone is in a continual panic attack and completely despairing. And I love this next phrase because I think it's such a good reminder for those who are uh, followers of Christ. As Christian people, we are not immune to any of the pain or loss or heartache of living in a fallen world. We're not, we're not immune for sure. Anxiety and fear, it's a, it's a common, it's a human problem. Kind of pulling from, from verse 1, of this text, I might ask you, what's troubling your spirit today? You're a parent who's, who's wrestling through the decisions of, of what role does social media have in the life of your kids as you read these reports and you go like, should they be exposed, should they not? How do I help them navigate this moment? What might happen if they get a Snapchat account? Or maybe you think about it for yourself or, you, or, or what troubles your spirit isn't maybe, maybe yourself, but how social media seems to have corroded our culture and create a, such, such a lack of civility. 
Maybe what's troubling your soul is a particular court case and how it turns out. Maybe what's troubling your soul is an upcoming or past election. Maybe what troubles your soul is curriculum decisions that are being made by your local schools. Maybe what troubles your soul is that people would watch CNN and the other people are troubled that other people would watch Fox. Maybe what troubles your soul is your economic present or the uncertainty of its future. Maybe what troubles your soul is your health or the health or lack of health of a loved one. Could be a million different uncertainties in an uncertain world that can trouble our spirit. David Powelson talks about it like this. He says, God didn't make a stone. So when distressing things happen, we feel distressed. When frightened things happen, we feel fearful. When things are out of control, we feel anxious. When things feel hopeless, I'm going to struggle. Something this chapter teaches us, something probably many of us could personally attest to, is that when we're anxious, anxiety always leads somewhere. It's always going to direct us somewhere. Um, there's really two main options in this text, and we see where the, the, the king goes with this, is that where, where his anxiety directs him is really inward or towards itself. He says, here's something that's, that's threatening me, that's worrying me, so I'm going to do everything I can to try to solve it. I'm going to pull together. He drew on all of his resources and his powers. He pulled his experts together to try to solve his problem, to solve his spirit. If you're going to give an overview of verses 2 through 13, it's that the king has a troubled dream. He summons his, his wise men to, to come to him, to try to give him insight into what he's dreamed. And then when that doesn't work, he results to threats. He says, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. If you can't tell me the dream and give me the interpretation of the dream, he doubles down on that threat. He's trying to solve his problem, but the result is it didn't work. Sometimes there's problems you can't fix no matter how powerful or wealthy you are. There's just some things that are too big for us. And this king was being confronted with that. And, and one of the results that happened when, when we can't fix the thing that's causing us to be anxious or we can't overcome the fear that's, that's troubling us, we become angry, become irrational. The king is furious and he's irrational. He's demanding people to do something that they cannot do. Unreasonable. You know, many of us can relate to that. We get anxious, we get fearful, we begin to lash out, we begin to act irrational. One of the gifts that this text gives us, though, is it gives us another place that we can go with our fear and another place that we can go with our anxiety, another place we can go with our panic, and it's, it's not inward, but it's upward. It's not towards self, but it's towards God. You know, contrast the king's response with Daniel, this passage really is a, a, a text of, of contrast. You see all these contrasts. That, that, that There's this contrast of, of 
what makes us anxious. There's a contrast of where we go with our anxiousness. There's a contrast in the results to where we go. We see this, this kind of human attempt or, or human effort versus divine ability or human inability and divine ability. We see anxiety and anger. And the contrast that with his calm is Daniel hears the same sentence that all the wise men of which he and his friends were one, and he answers with wisdom and prudence. He seems to not panic in the face of this oncoming storm. As I studied this text over, over this week and in the weeks of kind of prepping for this series, I continue to think about this chapter particularly, and I still, it's really hard for me to get my head around Daniel's response. This king is beyond powerful. Like trying to get a sense of King Nebuchadnezzar and his, his reign is difficult in modern times. It, it would be if you took the president of the United States and the president of China and, and, and the president of Russia and, and you took Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and you mashed them all together and you gave them the, the military might not just of one nation but of, of the top 10 nations of the world. You packed that all together and you also called that individual was basically seen as divine. Anything he said anything he wanted to do was done without question. If he said, you tell me the dream or I'm going to tear you limb to limb, there's nothing you could do about it. And he's furious and he's scared and Daniel's calm. He doesn't panic. Let me give you three ways. I think there's, there's obviously more than this, but let me give you three ways from this text of how do you have a non-anxious presence in a very anxious world? Or how do you not freak out when everyone's freaking out? Um, the order of this text is really insightful. It's, it's, it's stunning. If you look at verse 16, it says this, and, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and his commands, and he told them to seek mercy from God. It's a really interesting order because what he does is he actually goes to the king who has absolute authority and power before he actually knows what the dream is. He goes and says, appoint a time, and then he goes to his friends and he says, let's ask God. I would suggest to you that one of the ways that we can fight fear is that we fight fear with faith. Let me finish this David Pallison quote. God didn't make us stones, so when distressing things happen, we feel distressed. When frightening things happen, we feel fearful. When things are out of our control, we feel anxious. When things feel hopeless, I'm going to struggle. But there is a God. That little turns everything. When I feel hopeless, I'm going to struggle but there's a God. But there's a God who can meet me exactly at the place of that struggle. But there's a God. Into our unsettled tossing and turning in the middle of the night, there's a God. Into our wearies and the, the, the fierceness of this world, there is a God. Into the unpredictability of this afternoon, there is a God. Into whatever is frightening you, into ever what is worrying you, there is a God. That's what Daniel knew. That's what Daniel knew. At verse 16, when he went before the king, he knew, verse 18, there's a God, not just a God, but there's a God in heaven. 
That's what verse 18, let us seek mercy from this God in heaven. See, there's not just a God, there's a God who is merciful. So we fight fear with faith, with, with resolve, with, with trust, with, with confidence that there is a God. So just one of the best places to see this God who is in heaven, who is merciful, is by contrasting what Daniel knew with what is said by the Babylonian thinkers in verse 11. They respond to the king and his demands, and they say this, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. What's interesting is they get the first part right, but they get the second part wrong. The thing the king was asking is difficult. In fact, it's impossible. But here's what they got wrong. Their conception of God is that he didn't dwell with them. Their conception of God is that he was indifferent to them. Their conception of God is that he was, or their pantheon of gods is that he was far from them and capricious with them. But that's actually not the God of Daniel. The Bible from beginning to end is actually the story of a God who does dwell with us. In the very first part of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3, what we see is God dwelling with his people, with Adam and Eve. He's communing with them, and even as they rebel against his good presence, he still cares for them and nurtures them as, as they get sent out from the garden. We see God dwelling with his, his people and fighting for his people and involved in his people as his people were abducted into slavery in Egypt, and as they were emancipated, the, 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 the sea was spread that they could walk across on dry land as this great military might was coming after them. And then if you go to your Bibles, what it'll tell you is there's this pillar of cloud and fire that surrounded God's people. It was the very presence of God that they might be protected in the wilderness. And then they set up this thing called a tabernacle, which was a, a temporary tent, massive, lavish, incredible. But it was, like a, it was like a shadow reference to the heavenly courts. And in this tabernacle, in this center place, the, the presence of God would come down. He would let himself, he would let his people know that he was with them, that there is a God. And then as the temple was built, a more permanent structure, same thing. God let his presence be felt and seen that there is a God. Daniel knew it. There's a God who can meet him exactly in that struggle. God in heaven who is merciful. But there is something that Daniel could only see from a long way off about this truth that we get to look back on in vivid crimson color. See, the Bible continues to go on and talk about a God who doesn't just make his presence known, but a God who actually comes to dwell in flesh. We're about to celebrate the, the Advent season, Advent meaning arrival, the celebration of when Christ came, looking forward to when he returns as a great triumphant king. And what we're told in the Bible is that, that the that God, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen the glory of God. He is full of grace and truth. He's a God in heaven who came to earth and wrapped himself in humanity. He wasn't indifferent. He wasn't far off. He was inserted into our darkness and our despair and our confusion and our chaos and our circumstances. Jesus came in order to take on all the distressing things so that we might actually receive calm. 
He came to deal with all of the powers of darkness. He came to deal with with our rebellion to God. He came to deal with with a stiff arming and running from God. And what God did is he didn't stay far off. He didn't stay in heaven. He came to earth and he wrapped himself in flesh that he might live the life that we were meant to live and then go to a cross that we deserved. And on the cross, the Bible tells us things like he put darkness to shame. He put the powers and principalities, these authoritarian, corrupt powers, he put them to shame. He triumphed over them that he took death. He bore the wrath of God. He went to a tomb and then he got up out of the grave and was resurrected as an encore performance that the cross worked. Speak that into your anxieties, into your struggles, into your confusion. If if Christ can reverse death, what else can ultimately, I'm not saying trouble us at all. Oh goodness, we're in a distressing world and when distressing things happen, we feel distressed, but But if Christ can conquer death, what's troubling your soul that the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot bring, breathe new life into and new hope? Oh, there is a God who is merciful. So we fight fear with with faith in that God. We, we, We don't go it alone. The Babylonians, all the way, the God is far, he is distant, he doesn't care. That is not the God we have. It's not the God Daniel had. And so he, he, he said, King, point of time. I, I trust my God. And then he fights fear with something else. I went back and I found the first sermon that I preached when COVID um, really seemed to take over the globe. Now, some of you might have been more clued in when this was all happening, but, but for, for me, and I think for many of us, it became very real when there was an outbreak down in Kirkland, and stuff started to really spin up, and there, there was a moment where, where when everything got shut down, where, where, where pretty much everyone was worried and nervous and afraid, and we agreed. Do you remember that, like, three-day span of humanity? When is a nation we all... Two days. Somebody told me it was two days. The day and a half where everyone agreed and everyone was scared. We had, it was like the most people ever that were attending online services because everyone was so scared because we were facing this great enemy death. And I went back and I was looking at the, the sermon that, that I preached and it came out of Philippians 4, 6, and 7 where it says, you don't have to be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication, we make our requests known. And then maybe this beautiful thing happens, that, that this peace that surpasses Common understanding. It doesn't make sense, but it settles on you. It guards your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love the, the, the summary of, of that sermon. Usually during sermons, we try to have some kind of like big idea. What's the big takeaway? It's hard to remember all the stuff for sure. It's hard for me to remember, and I preached at the first service. Um, but it was this, pray more, worry less. And that's what Daniel did. He, he fought prayer with faith, but he... Or he fought fear with faith, but he fought fear with prayer. Is he, see, Nebuchadnezzar went to all the things that he thought could possibly work, and they didn't. Daniel went to the one place that he knew would work, and it did. So he went to God. He gathered his friends, and he said, let us seek the mercy of God. Might, might he tell us? Might he intervene for us? I love the, 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 the text, and, and I think it's in 1 Peter where it says, cast all of your anxieties on him. And we're, we're, you're praying. You're saying, God, I'm scared of this. This is troubling my soul. I am worried here. Cast all of your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. See, the God in heaven is merciful, and he's not far off. He came near, and he cares for you. 
And so we get to fight fear and panic and worry by throwing those things back on God to make that truth real to us. Do one more. Verses 20 through 23 form um, the literary, so kind of like the structure of the chapter, but also the theological center of this text. Um, Out of Daniel's petition comes this incredible praise to the one true God. And Daniel actually has a number of these. If you read through the 12 chapters of Daniel, you'll see a number of these really beautiful declarations of really deep, really big God theology stuff that's happening in Daniel. And we see that in Daniel chapter 20 and following. Just read this slowly. Listen to what's being said about this God. This is defining the one that you have faith in. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and set up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows, I love all the he, he, he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me of what we asked of you, for you've made known to us the king's matter. I'll give you a couple of observations on this. Um, the king might have power, but it's limited because wisdom and might belong to God. The king can threaten, but it's God who raises up and removes. The future is cloudy to us, but God knows what's in the darkness. Like why God can reveal the future to Daniel is he reigns over the future. Daniel understood something, that God is God, and God is great. And what that produced in Daniel, um, I'm going to suggest, is is what the Bible would would call this... this, this confidence that Daniel has, this trust that Daniel has, this hope that Daniel has, and the godness of God, is I, I, I believe what it produced in Daniel is what's called a righteous fear. Everyone's afraid in this text. They're, most of them are afraid of, the king's afraid of what the future's bringing, his people are afraid of what the king is going to bring. Daniel fears the Lord. What we do is we fight fear with faith, we fight fear with prayer. But let me give you this one. We fight fear with fear. It's going to be a strange point maybe for a little bit for some of us, so let me try to unpack it. Um, Michael Reeves, in in his new book, Rejoice and Tremble, I love the subtitle, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord, he begins his book with the way this chapter begins, a culture of fear. He just says, we are in a culture that is freaked out and anxious and worried and nervous all the time. And I could give you the stats on it, but probably a lot of us feel it. And so he begins the chapter and he talks about why. Why do we we live in an age of so much anxiety? One of the things he says is this. He says, the loss of the fear of God is what ushered in our modern age of anxiety. But the fear of God is the very antidote to our fretfulness. Or as Lecrae said, we fear circumstances so much because we fear God so little. 
Now, the reason I'm phrasing this, the fear of the Lord, instead of Daniel hoped in God or Daniel trusted God or Daniel looked to God, all of those are true and appropriate, is that, that, that I... I that trust came from somewhere. What gave Daniel the resolve to stand before this king who says, I'm going to tear you limb from limb without buckling. Is there, there, there's an engine behind that that drove his responses, and I would suggest to you it's a righteous fear of the Lord. Daniel, the, the book of Daniel is really like a 12-chapter biography and portrait of what it looks like to fear the Lord. And we're going to look at many of these different scenarios as we walk through this. Um, a few weeks ago... My daughter, Lily, my youngest daughter, Lily, was, uh, they were writing essays for school, and it was like, what's some big lesson that you've learned in your life, and where did it come from, and how is it impacting you? And so they did all this work to write these essays, and then some of the classmates, they got to read them together at this, this gathering at night. So we show up, and, and we're in our table groups, and these students, one after another, they're reading their essays, and they're all really, really well done. And at the end of, of the essays, um, people got to ask questions of the uh, the, the writers. And so there's this one person that was just like, that, was, that just blew me away. I mean, you're all in eighth grade, and yet your, your vocabulary is so rich, and it's so weighty, and it's so sophisticated. I mean, I just can't believe you came up with this sort of language. And they said, where did you, how did you do that? What do you think the answer was? The source. <laughs> searched it. I just, it was kind of funny. Like the, the buildup of the question was just so fantastic. And then it was like, they all looked at each other and said, thesaurus. Daniel is a thesaurus on the fear of the Lord. It is putting it in color for us of what it looks like to live with a fear of the Lord. I'll give you a couple of definitions. Amanda Denbach says it like this. I want to preface what I mean when I write fear of the Lord. I'm not talking about a fear that pushes us away from God, terrifies us, destroys us, or brings us to a wrong understanding of God's character. I'm talking about a healthy fear that cultivates reverence, majesty, awe, submission, trembling, and humility in us towards a holy God. Or this by Michael Reeves, the fear of God is no mild-mannered, reserved, or limp thing. It is a startlingly physical, overpowering reaction. And so respect and reverence are simply too weak and great to stand as synonyms for the fear of God. Awe seems much, a much better fit, though even it doesn't quite capture the physical intensity, the happy thrill, or the exquisite delight that leans toward instead of away from the Lord. If you read the book of Daniel, you get a 12-chapter narrative portrait of what it looks like to fear the Lord. And one of the things you heard in both of their definitions, and one of the things you see with Daniel, is that it causes rejoicing and trembling but not recoiling. A wrong understanding of the fear of the Lord, it creates fright and fear and hiddenness, but a right understanding of the fear of the Lord drives us towards Him. It doesn't drive us inward. It doesn't drive us far away. It drives us upward back to Him. Again, Michael Reeves, when God is so marvelous in our eyes that we rejoice and tremble, we cannot but praise Him and threw ourselves on him in hearty, independent prayer. We see both of those things happening here with Daniel. As he praises and he petitions. Or again, from Reeves referencing to John Bunyan, it is, it is, Bunyan says, the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God in such a way that they want to flee from God. The Spirit's work is the exact opposite, to produce in us a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. 
One of the best illustrations as I think about what it looks like to have a healthy, reverent, biblical, righteous fear of God comes from, it's probably the most used illustration I've ever used over the years, and it comes from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, this great retelling of four humans that go into the land of Narnia, and it kind of retells the big mythic aspects of the Christian faith. And in this one story early on in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this young girl named Lucy. And she's talking with Mrs. and Mr. Beaver, these, these characters, and they're, they're preparing to go see this, the, the central figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia, Aslan, this lion, this mighty, magnificent, giant lion who's supposed to be an image of Christ. That's the idea in this book, is he's supposed to reference the, the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. And so she's getting ready to go meet him, and she's talking to Mrs. and Mrs. Beaver, and she says, oh, I would very much like to meet Aslan, but I think I should be so very much afraid. Then she asks him a question. She goes, is he safe? And the response back is perfect. Mrs. Beaver says, oh, child, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is good. And when we understand the fear of the Lord rightly, we put those together. Oh, he's not safe. But he is good. Verse 18, let us seek mercy. From the God of heaven. Let us go to the, the, the God whom the highest heavens cannot contain. Because he's merciful. I love the way John Bunyan says, Oh, that a great God should be a good God. And a fear of the Lord understands that. That a great God is also a good God. I'm not running from him. I'm finding my refuge in him. And it's a fear that calms us and it comforts us in the midst of the chaos. It's one of the things that the fear of the Lord does for us is, is it doesn't necessarily always change it, the circumstances around us. It just gives us calm in the midst of it. It's how to have a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. Michael Reeves, again, says it like this. He says, as the fear of the Lord grows, it outgrows, it eclipses, consumes, and destroys all rival fears. So the greater God looks in his goodness and grandeur, the less scary all the other things are around us. And there are many things to be scared of. I thinking about a scene from, from The Hobbit. Um, I have not read those because there's movies. And I never understand. <laughs> like, I still, I know I'm going to get, I always, it's like I get the most hate mail on points like this. I understand it. I want to be like, when's the last time you listened to a radio program and turned your TVs off? None of you do that. So anyway, so I, I watched the movie because I'm a sane person. And, and so I'm watching the movie. And um, I think it's in the second movie of The Hobbit. And it's this scene towards the end of the movie where there's this mighty fire-breathing dragon named Smog. And he is covered in, in scales that are, it's like the tank, it's like, a, it's, like the, it's like an iron tank. And he's got all these scales on him and he, he emerges out of this, this underground kingdom where he has laid claim to all of this gold and he's flying down to destroy what's called Lake Town, this series of homes built on the lake. And he is just, he is, his wings, I mean, he gets moving and his blow houses down and people are flying and he's 
fire breathing. He's just shooting fire everywhere. The whole city is erupting in fire and smoke. And smog is flying around, killing everyone. And then there's this guy named Bart who's just a dad who lives in, in Lake Town, but he's a really good archer. He's really good at shooting an arrow. And there happens to be this one arrow, this black arrow that's strong enough to actually take down smog, this fire-breathing dragon. And there's one tiny little spot over on his side where there's a little tiny opening, and he's got one arrow, and he's got one shot to bring down this dragon. And so he goes up on this turret, and he's standing up there, and there's this, this like, iron crossbow to launch this you know, eight-foot-long uh, 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 arrow into to smog, but smog destroys the top of the turret, and the, and the crossbow crumbles. What's he going to do? He's just got this giant arrow. Doesn't have any place to put it. His son happens to be with him. And so he has his son stand in front of him. And all around the background, this dragon is flying and is breathing fire and people are screaming and there's smoke and chaos everywhere. And he somehow fashions a, a, a cord and a bow and he just tells his son, stand still. And he takes the arrow and he puts it on his shoulder. And his son is facing his dad and the dragons behind his son and his, his bard is pulling it back and he's aiming. He's got one shot. And his son's scared and he keeps turning around. He keeps moving. He keeps looking at all the danger that's behind him. It's an incredible scene. I, we probably should have shown it to you. I mean, it's just, it's just a scene and, and there's so much to be afraid of behind the son, but the dad does this. He says, son, just look at me. Just look at me. So the son looks at his dad. And he lets the arrow go, and he slays the dragon. When I think about that scene, I, th I think about this, this quote, that the more authoritative God is, the bigger God is, the grander God is, the more awe you have with God. It doesn't change the, the, the dangers around, but it, but it changes where we look. It begins to eclipse that danger. You want your fears to fade Look at the God of heaven who is merciful, who came to earth and conquered death for us. Give you a few more. Um, it's a fear that frees us from being afraid. Michael Reeves again, he says, the fear of the Lord, it's the only fear that imparts strength. All our fears, they make us cower, they make us rash out and irrational. I mean, all sorts of things. But this is the only fear that actually strengthens us, it resolves us. It puts steel in the spine. Or as Oswald Chambers said, he the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. This became, this a, see if I can make this illustration land. This kind of, this, that quote became real to me yesterday at the Turkey Bowl. So, um, Turkey Bowl, I love that we get together. There's probably more people that showed up to like watch it and play and eat donuts and play spike ball and do all other stuff. All these kids, just people everywhere. It was just so much fun. And then on this turf field, there's like three fields lined up or three different games lined up and all these teams are, are playing. And, and if you didn't know this, in, in our church, I love when we do turkey bowls because it's a huge range of abilities and ages and, and like giftings for playing football. I mean, we saw it yesterday, just a huge range. But one of the things that we actually encourage in our church is that you recruit other players to come play on the team because we want to have fun and we want it to be a good outreach event. And some people in our church have now taken that to go find the very best athletes that you possibly 
can. So you say, I'm going to recruit my friends, but I'm only going to recruit the very best of my friends. And no shade on you. I mad respect for doing that. So yesterday, there was a, a rumor that there was a couple of guys that were recruited that were both D1 football players a few years prior. And middle-aged men like myself. Not fair. Okay, so you got these guys that played at the top of the college game, and they're out there playing. And then there was a rumor circulating that one of them actually played on a pro team. I don't know if it's true, but I do know I was watching the first game that they were both in, and I'm watching this guy. And he's playing safety. He's watching. He's telescoping everything. He's watching the eyes. He's watching everything. And I'm just going, oh, this doesn't look good. Someone throws the ball. And he jumps. I swear he jumped 15 feet in the air. <laughs> and then breathed fire out of his mouth. You know, I was like watching smog. He grabbed it with his two fingers, you know, brought it down. And then he starts to return this interception. And he made everyone miss. I mean, he went this way and this way and this way. He spun. And before he got to the goal line, he ran back to the other end where he caught the ball and then just beat everyone again. <laughs> he didn't do the last part, but he did do the first part. And as I watch this, and I'm thinking about how this is going to work out in this tournament, about who's possibly going to win, here's the passage that popped in my head, Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon forged against you will stand. <laughs> I was like, good luck to everyone else. There's nothing you can do if he decides to run like that. There's nothing you can do. You cannot win. If God's for you, who can be against you? That's a fear the Lord does. If God is for you, who can be against you? Oh, there's going to be tribulation, and there's going to be calamities, and there's going to be struggles, and there's going to be worry, and there's going to be panic, and there's going to be chaos. But if God's for you, who could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Close with this. Daniel and his friends were spared by God's intervention. But don't miss this. So were the Babylonians. God's mercy didn't just settle on Daniel had actually settled on everyone. This merciful God is showing up in Babylon for the good of many. And one of the wonderful things that we get to bring into an anxious world as followers of Christ is resolute hope. We can have a non-anxious presence in an anxious world, but we get to also have a non-anxious presence for an anxious world. Alistair Beggs says it like this. He says, too much of the public face, I'm not saying this is you at all, but too much of the public face, what's loudest in our culture, too much of the public face of evangelicalism is characterized by vociferous, angry venting or panicking rather than prayerful, humble, calm, and confident belief in a sovereign God who is in control of all things. My roommate Mountain Man Steve, like he came in and he, he fixed the problem and he immediately changed the culture in the room. He calmed it. He took what could have been ruinous and he brought rescue. And we get to do the same. We don't have to be afraid. 
We can fear God, and we won't fear anything else. We can rejoice and tremble before the God in heaven who so mercifully came to the earth. And maybe then we could go into our culture and show off that beauty and that lightness and that hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us resolute hope because of who you are, your character, your nature. Grant us the grace to not, we don't want to be like Daniel. We want to know the God that Daniel knew. We want to know you. I thank you that you don't shame us where we're anxious. You don't condemn us where we're fearful. And you also don't leave us in it. You invite, it, invite us to let it lead us back to you. So I pray, God, in this moment that you would just settle our souls under your sovereign goodness. Let us live as people who know that there is a God in heaven who is merciful and mighty in here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.